The IPCC releases their latest report and the UN grabs a hold of it to ensure us that don't worry, our days are numbered and it's all over for all of us. Why does the left consistently use crisis for their own political advantage and what should we be fighting? What is the real obstacles to overcome? It's an important question to ask. We'll look at that today as we look at other stories like the Trump indictment that inevitably will be dropped this week entirely after much ado was made about nothing. And then we'll look at the ongoing battle between Trump and DeSantis and show why there's a more important battle that needs to be fought and a more important point in that whole conversation between these two men. And then finally, we'll look at a post that PragerU put out there that suggested the audacious claim that men should not wear dresses and why the creator of VeggieTales, Phil Vischer, has a problem with that obvious truth. We'll talk about that and more today on IndieThinker. Today's show is sponsored by our friends over at Element Home Loans. In the past, I've asked you to go somewhere deep in the recesses of your imagination, and I'm going to ask you to do it one more time. Imagine, if you will, a small group of elitists in places like BlackRock that gather at places like Davos to talk about ESG and many other things in the Great Reset. Imagine these people desire to create a nation of renters so that the most basic need in life, housing, is controlled by these people so that ultimately they can control you. Now, snap back into reality and realize that there are some who want to usher us into 1984 like that very quickly, but we're not there yet. And you can take your family's financial future into your own hands before that ever happens by owning your own home. And for a lot of people, that starts with the pre-approval process. But you don't want to do that with just anybody. You want to do it with a company that shares your values, a company that you can trust. And that is our friends over at Element Home Loans. And the Kevin Blair team is one of the greatest teams in the nation that can help you make sure that you get all the information you need upfront with no gimmicks, no tactics, no tricks. Good customer service is all they have to offer you. And making sure that they have all your information upfront so that you can have the freedom to know what kind of home you can buy so that you can go and make an offer on that home. So take your family's financial future into your hands before it's too late and do that by going to kbmtg.com. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Theodicy is a big word that ultimately is after a really important concept. It's an attempt to try to explain why a good God could allow suffering. Why perhaps even as I'll try to explain in the show today, why suffering serves a redemptive purpose, why it's good for us. So I'm going to be talking about some of the battles that we should face and why it's important for us to face them. And I do so within the context of understanding that that I hope we can agree. We're living in a time of unparalleled prosperity. It doesn't mean that any of the answers I provide today are going to be soul-satisfying if you happen to be going through a real deep time of suffering or that there aren't real issues out there in, in the world. I just hope we can acknowledge that that while those issues exist and always will exist, we are living in a time where prosperity has given us the freedom to focus on things that really matter. And that's why it's really unfortunate that instead of focusing on those things, we've instead busied ourselves with social media and created the legacy media, which is just an organization to lie to us, essentially, and then created shows like Ted Lasso. And it's ultimately just shown us how sappy, uninteresting, and boring our culture has become in the midst of all of that prosperity. But in an effort to curb that lack of enthusiasm, we've responded to some pretty desperate attempts to create enemies out there externally 
because we don't have as many as we used to in the past. And the UN has been happy to try to spice things up and provide those enemies for you and for me. So in a recent study that they released from the IPCC, we once again hear that the world is coming to an end if we don't act quickly. And so we need a group of elitists to institute DEI training and meet at Davos every single year to try to tell us all what to do. And according to the Washington Post, the UN just released its latest finding on climate change. And surprise, the world is on the brink of catastrophic global warming. But don't worry, the UN is not alone. The AP has joined the echo chamber chorus to announce that the world is skating on thin ice. And CNN as well said the world is running out of time. So it's the end of the world as we know it. And oddly, we all feel fine. Now, could it be that we feel fine? Not necessarily because people are climate deniers, which what does that even mean? How do you deny the climate? But rather that these people who have been crying wolf for ages and generations have done so without evidence and without their false prophecies ever coming into existence. Man, I look back all the way to 1972 when we were told that we have 10 years to fix the catastrophic climate change that's coming upon us. And in 1982, we were told that the year 2000 sounds like a pretty good round figure to tell you that it's all coming to an end. All the way back in 1982, the New York Times was prophesying that an environmental catastrophe is coming in 2000 that will be as irreversible as nuclear holocaust. I grew up, and perhaps you grew up, at a time when claims of apocalyptic climate change were as ubiquitous as body glove, fanny packs, and slap bracelets. So first, let me just step back and assure you that the most drastic and apocalyptic claims of climate change are rather hotly debated, pun intended. So even the IPCC acknowledges that the direst claims that they make about climate change and what it's going to do to the earth are actually the ones that are least founded upon the facts. So they're the most hypothetical, in other words. But second, let me just step back and say this. I have to admit as a Christian I think the record of the climate doomsday crowd is very similar to the record of some of those more outspoken uh, doomsdayers in the Christian evangelical world that have told us that the world is definitely coming to an end at this point in time. Now, the leftist and the secularist and even the progressive Christian wants to point the finger and mock those Christians, but why can't we do the same to those who wish to prophesy impending doom even though they have been proven wrong time after time after time? Let me just step back and say, I'm not denying that climate change exists. Of course it does. Global warming is something that has always existed. The globe has gotten warmer and colder. And I'm not even going to suggest that there aren't ways in which humanity, mankind, is producing some of this climate change. I'm just going to simply say this. I'm going to suggest that perhaps we've created such an enemy in climate change and in what's happening in the environment because we are desperate for some aspect of control. And we're desperate to know that we can change things, that the doom that is coming, somehow we can control it so that we don't have to look deep, dark, into the deep, dark depths of our soul and realize that we actually don't have as much control as we think. And if doomsday comes, we're probably not ready for it. But more importantly, here's the point. I think in the midst of prosperity, we even needed to create enemies because we all need something to fight. There's something deeply embedded in the human soul. 
Now, I, for one, am glad that we have prosperity, so I'm definitely not decrying that. I'm glad we don't have to worry about dysentery and syphilis and our kids maybe not making it to 13 years old because they're starving. I'm glad prosperity has brought us to this place. The only problem is, is that as our prosperity has increased, our desire and our thinking that we need God has decreased. So as prosperity has taken away difficulty in an external basis, our need for God has decreased. And as a result, now we don't understand that there is a soul and that the real thing that needs to be fight now that we're not fighting as many external things as we used to in the past is something that is deeply embedded within. Now, some people might call it evolution. If that makes you feel better, feel free to do that. But I'm going to call it God. I think God gave us a soul that continually cries out to us and tells us to pay attention to it. It's doing so because in the midst of not having many enemies to fight out there, it's calling us back to the existential questions that every age and generation have been asking since the dawn of mankind. What am I here for? What's my purpose? Am I actually a created being or am I just a random accident as Richard Dawkins and other atheists wish to express? Is there a meaning to my life? And as we battle those internal questions, we find meaning and purpose because surprise, suffering actually is good for us. Obstacles are good for us. It gives us something to fight against. It gives us something to overcome. This is why in America, especially, we love the underdog story. We love to see Rocky trot out there and beat up the huge Russian, not only because we hate the Ruskies, but simply because we know that there is an obstacle that must be overcome in each and every one of our lives. And in overcoming those obstacles, we become better people. Now, what do we do in the midst of prosperity that is taking all those obstacles away? Well, we have to create an enemy if we won't look deep down within our soul because we don't think the soul actually exists. And now you may say to yourself, well, how does that kind of soul-searching endeavor that can happen when we admit that there's a God and that there is a soul, how can that actually help us battle climate change? Like, that's an existential crisis. We need to do something about it now. Well, here's my argument. Uh, By and large, restructuring every single economy in the world is going to be a little difficult. But if we all start looking at the man in the mirror, we can actually make subtle changes in our own life that actually will help us understand that probably we shouldn't listen to Greta Thunberg as much as we should be listening to Bjorn Lomberg and start evidencing some of these claims and looking into them and taking personal personal responsibility for them. It is when we start doing that that then we will become the kind of people who can fight whatever climate change exists out there because we're doing so with the evidence because we finally care about things that truly matter. In the meantime, when we're creating enemies that may or may not exist out there and trying to fight those things to try to find something to overcome, it's damaging ourselves. Let me give you this argument in the way that it makes the most sense. When a trans person has a feeling, when they're gender dysphoric and they feel like they're trapped in the wrong body, the mainstream answer in our secular society today is to shove drugs down that person's throat, especially if they're seven or eight and they don't even know their butt from a hole in the ground, but we're still going to demand that we listen to all children and believe all children. So we're going to shove puberty-blocking drugs down their throat, which may injure them for the rest of their life. And, and we're also, maybe if you're just old enough, 13, to actually have full body plastic surgery, we're going to hack away at your body, give you gaping wounds the rest of your life that you'll have to attend to, and that will be the answer for an internal feeling rather than what we have been doing for past generations, which is instead of to change the external, to change the feeling. 
But now we can't suggest that our feelings may be an error or that our subjective understanding of morality may be the problem because our own experience dictate reality to all of us. Unfortunately, objective reality it still exists and is suffering the consequences of our imposed subjective morality. In other words, we have created an enemy in ourselves externally in our physical body because we are not willing to acknowledge that the real enemy may lurk somewhere deep within our soul and our emotions, our feeling, our, our, our will, and our thinking. And, and because we've rejected God, we no longer believe the soul exists, and as a result of it, we're having to create enemies externally to fight against. I've said it often on the show that if God doesn't exist in your worldview, then you must replace him with something. Maybe this is true of Satan as well. If Satan doesn't exist because none of that stuff is real, well, then maybe we will have to find a demon to fight against. And sometimes it's even our own physical body, and we do so at great peril. So I can only tell you this. Secularism has left us in this state. It's left us in a place where we're fighting all the wrong battles, where we understand that suffering actually has a redemptive purpose, but, but we don't know really what to fight against. So we must make up these enemies in order to try to fight something. So we fight, fight victimization. We create safe spaces to protect us from all difficulty. And then we realize that life is pain. Life is pain, Highness. And we must fight something. And it's actually good for us to do so. And if we're willing to acknowledge that, then we may have to also take the next step, that only religious thought can bring us back from the brink of our destruction to help us really recognize what real enemies look like. And we'll try to do that today as we jump into our stories. Well, last Tuesday on the show, I suggested that Donald Trump would be arrested because Donald Trump himself suggested as much. And of course, that never happened. I was skeptical about it and quickly started to see some things that made me wonder if Donald Trump wasn't just trying to use this as a ploy to raise money for his campaign rather than actually grappling with evidence that he had been given. So as per the usual arrangement, Trump doesn't necessarily have a great grasp on reality and none of that happened. And in fact, it looks like this week sometime, Al Alvin Bragg will finally come to the place where he has to drop all charges because he understands that his little partisan foolish attempt to um, create an insurrection uh, by going after a former president, a president and a uh, future contender for the presidency, that going after that individual in a political fashion is actually bad for, bad for uh, our society. Now, he's had to drop that predominantly because of some damning testimony that happened last week that I wanted to make you aware of. And, and it says this in a Yahoo News article. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg slammed House Republican committee chairs mere hours after lawmakers' efforts to double down with inquiries into former President Donald Trump's hush money case. Bragg, who slammed the GOP leader's unprecedented inquiry into this letter earlier this week, took on a second letter about the case co-authored by Representatives Jim Jordan and James Comer and Brian Steele, lawmakers who led the House Judiciary Oversight and Administration's Committee, respectively. 
So in other words, guys like Jim Jordan sent a letter to Alvin Bragg and said, hey, what's going on here? And Alvin Bragg responded back and said, hey, this is unprecedented for you to be sending this letter. The House has no business trying to stick their nose in this in this matter. You guys need to do what you're supposed to do. Well, that's funny to me that a Manhattan district attorney is sticking his nose in a federal case because eventually I know they're just doing kind of grand jury stuff here and haven't brought charges against Trump yet. But what charges are they bringing against him except for misappropriation of campaign funds? which is a federal offense and has nothing to do with a Manhattan district attorney. Needless to say, yeah, you're right, Alvin Bragg, this is unprecedented. It's unprecedented for a Manhattan DA to get involved in this federal case, especially when this Manhattan DA is totally uninterested in crimes taking place in his own city. This is also unprecedented because there hasn't been a case like this in the past where a president that uh, a former president that is set on running again in the next election is being attacked politically, obviously politically, by a Manhattan district attorney. So this is why the House is getting involved in the first place. So we've got some unprecedented stuff all around, Alvin Bragg. Now, there's there's one other thing that, that we should mention about this. Bragg went on to say this. Bragg, in his response on Saturday, asserted that his office evaluates cases based on facts of the law, and the evidence. Now, forgive me if I'm a little bit skeptical whenever a leftist uses words like evidence and facts, because we are, after all, talking about a group of people when Matt Walsh wants to get up to testify about mutilating children, something that is at face value objectively true. These people want to demand credentials all while creating 15 billion different genders and creating a whole new different English language where they develop their own pronouns and doing so also while issuing forth mask mandates without any scientific evidence whatsoever, period. So forgive me if I don't believe them at all, but a couple of points to make here. If Alvin Bragg is so interested in the truth, how come everyone else that's investigated this case has dropped it and said that there's no merit to it? If he really does love evidence and facts, how come he's not willing to come to those same conclusions? How about this? Um, How about we look at the fact that Cohen is an ex-con and a proven liar? Now, I know the left likes to make bedfellows with people like Jeffrey Epstein, but it doesn't mean that the fact that Cohen is an ex-con means nothing. These kind of jailhouse confessions used to be laughed at in society when we actually had a tenable relationship with reality. How about this? Uh, Legal advisor to Trump, Robert Costello, just recently testified, and you guys should know this for sure, that as he testified, he had given hundreds of emails to Alvin Bragg to prove that Robert Cohen had done this thing on his own volition without the help of Trump and without misappropriating campaign funds. But only six of those emails had been released to the public. Now, why is that, do you think? It doesn't take somebody who loves Trump to come to the obvious conclusion that the reason that those emails were were buried is because they are not convenient to Alvin Bragg's case. Now, Robert Costello testifying to this effect essentially just destroyed this indictment from from day one. So it is going to be dropped at least, if not this week, in very short order. But here's the whole point of creating Donald Trump as the Satan for the left or creating Donald Trump as this existential threat and this uh, insurrectionist who wants to overthrow democracy. Not only was that an attempt to try to get ratings, but more importantly, it was an attempt to try to matter. So it wasn't even just that CNN and Don Lamont and others like him wanted to try to build their brand. That would be bad enough. It's also this. 
that guys like Don Lemon and formerly Chris Cuomo when he actually had a job, uh, these guys were desperate to matter. They were desperate to let the world know that their voice could make a difference and that they could be the arbiters of truth in a world of postmodernism where the truth is constantly being subjected to the predations of progressivism. These guys wanted their voice to matter. And our desperate attempts to matter ultimately lead to these kind of desperate indictments against Trump or things like them. Desperate Hail Mary attempts to try to make a name for ourselves that ultimately leave us with egg on our face. You can probably think about a million different ways in which we do this in our life where we are desperate to matter, but it ends up backfiring because we're actually looking for meaning in all of the wrong places. Surprise, surprise, it doesn't come by the destruction of our enemies. It actually comes because we're willing to do something meaningful in our own lives, which brings me to the next story, which is Ron DeSantis just went on the Piers Morgan show in an interview that I highly recommend that you check out because I think it's important for you to hear some of the things Ron DeSantis said. There's a couple of viral moments that stuck out to me that I wanted to share with you. And the first one is an argument for a 2024 presidential run for Ron DeSantis and why he deserves to be voted for. As we just got on the off the heels of speaking about Cohen and the fact that Trump had this bad habit of surrounding himself with people that didn't really have his best interests at, in their heart and mind, uh, Ron DeSantis has shown that he has a, a capacity to make sure that he does surround himself with loyal people. So here's him talking to Pierce Morgan about that. What are the differences between you? When I know what I, I know him very well, I'm, having now spent time with you, I, I could immediately identify a few differences. But what do you think of the differences? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the approach to COVID was, was different. I mean, you know, I would have fired somebody like Fauci. Uh, I think that he got way too big for his britches, and I think he did a lot of damage. Uh, I also think just in terms of my approach to leadership, you know, I get personnel in the government who have the agenda of the people and share our agenda. If you bring your own agenda in, you're gone. We're just not going to have that. So the way we run the government, I think, is no daily drama, focus on the big picture, and put points on the board. And I think that that's something that's very important. Now, Trump undeniably had one of the leakiest cabinets, I think, in presidential history, as far as I can tell. Uh, there were un disloyal people all around him on a regular basis. Uh, and he elevated people like Fauci, who didn't have the best interests of the American people in mind, and, and all sorts of others. He did a really poor job of actually putting the right people in the right place and not getting rid of deep state actors who only wanted to further political agenda, but rather rather than actually do what was in the best interests of, of the people. And Ron DeSantis has a clear-cut you know, history of doing this. So early on in the 2016 run for Trump, we, we heard these arguments like Trump is going to put the right people in the right place. He may not know anything about politics, but he knows a lot about business. So he can he can get those best people, the ones who are, you know, captains of industry to to look into these specific places that demand kind of the expertise. And he can just get those tasks going and put the right people in the right place. But of course, that didn't really seem to happen. That did happen with DeSantis and it continues to happen. If anything, DeSantis has successfully put a group of loyal people around him and in places of importance throughout the state of Florida. He did this just recently when he got rid of a DA who would not actually do what he was hired to do and was not serving the best interests of the people of the state of Florida. Ron DeSantis, throughout his, his um, governance, has seemed to really understand his job 
as governor of Florida is to serve the people. This is why we voted for Trump in the first place. So let me want to make this argument as we kind of jump into the next is then in, in this next kind of viral clip that we see in the Piers Morgan interview with Ron DeSantis. And that is this, that we forget, and I find it very convenient that not many people talk about that elections are almost always the lesser of two evils. We, you usually never vote for the guy, the person we really want in office because we believe in him and because we know he's going to be a great leader. He's moral. He's pure. He's good. He's kind. It's like it's almost never what we're arguing. And that's not what we argued with Trump. We forget this a lot. I heard Norman Lear, who's a big-time TV producer, one of the biggest uh, TV producers of all time in, in, in Hollywood, I heard him say this. He said, Trump was nothing more than the middle finger to the establishment. And I think that's totally right. Now, this coming from a leftist, that we voted Trump into office not because perhaps he was the best man for the job. I mean, he surprised us and did some great things. But we voted for Trump because we did not want Hillary in office. And even people, you know, um, further to the left than me kind of agreed. Like if there was a worse candidate that the Democrats could have put up, they, <laughs> uh, they we didn't know who that was. They put the worst candidate up in 2016. And that's very much the reason Donald Trump won, because they're like, hey, listen, we want to drain the swamp. Uh, we don't know if Trump can do it, but we know what the swamp look, looks like. It looks like Hillary Clinton. We don't want her in office. And so people voted Trump into office. And that's, to my mind, what 2016 was really was really all about. But, but I don't want that to put us in the place where we think that moral leaders don't exist or that if we found a moral leader, that we shouldn't be interested in putting him or her, him, in a position to succeed. Um, and, and that's just what we see in a viral moment on Piers Morgan's interview with, with Ron DeSantis. So here's that. When she got cancer... Um, she talked very movingly about this in a, in a, a campaign uh, commercial for when you ran for governor in, in 2022. But she talked very emotionally about it and gave a real, like, heartfelt assessment of you. And I don't want to, you know, bring your blushes here. But she said, when I was diagnosed with cancer, I was facing the battle for my life. He was the dad who took care of my children when I couldn't. He was there to pick me off the ground when I literally couldn't stand. He was there to fight for me when I didn't have the strength to fight for myself. When you watch that, because I don't think you'd seen it before it went out. No. Right? And you see your wife crying as she pays that kind of tribute to you. What did that make you feel? Well, look, you know, for sickness and in health, good times and bad. I mean, that, that's the job of a spouse. And I, I, to have her thank me publicly like that was, was very uh, heart, heartwarming. I know it touched a lot of people throughout the state of Florida. And you're right. I didn't know what she was going to say because she asked me, I want to go over this. I said, you know, as I saw this part of the interview, I couldn't help but think this. Well, Ron DeSantis sits beside his wife while she's going through breast cancer. Donald Trump is soliciting prostitutes. Now, I don't know this to be true. I'm not trying to say I have like some infinite knowledge that the Stormy Daniels thing took place. I just know this, and I think you do too, if you'll be honest. Donald Trump is not the bastion of morality. Donald Trump is not somebody who really cares about marital vows. Now, this argument was made on the left and said, how can you Christians vote for him? Trump's not moral. How can you want him to be the president? Well, <laughs> Hillary Clinton was talking about aborting babies all the way up until the vag magic magical vaginal canal produced that child. So I don't think you can say Hillary Clinton is moral in any shape, way, or fashion either. And so in 2016, the clear-cut more moral case uh, among these lesser of two evils was Donald Trump. And I'm still making that same argument today, that 
if we can find a moral leader, that we do want to vote for that person. We don't, we're not deceived. We're not confused about the fact that very often those moral leaders disappoint and that Washington has a way of bringing out the worst in people. But for that very same reason, we want somebody in office who actually has a strong moral compass. And I'm telling you, uh, throughout that interview and throughout the tenure of Ron DeSantis, we see that this man is a godly man who really cares about the truth. And so while if it's between Joe Biden and Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, I'd, you know, whatever gets Biden out of office, I'm all for. But if it's between just Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, I think we have a clear cut case in terms of who is going to be the greater moral authority in the midst of incredible corruption where politicians continually forget what they're actually in Washington to do. And by the way, they're not alone. There's lots of people that are forgetting what they're actually about, including the creator of VeggieTales, Phil Vischer, who just recently posted something ridiculous that I wanted to bring to your attention in our final segment, Bible Study with Democrats. Oh, God of pronouns. You'll know Phil Vischer perhaps from the hit cartoon VeggieTales. And VeggieTales was, of course, a Christian, moralistic kind of cartoon for kids where vegetables came alive to tell us about all the stories of the Bible and about pirates who don't do anything. So Phil Vischer was the brainchild behind that and even a voice for one of the guys. I don't remember which one. I think the tomato. But anyway, in any case, uh, that's Phil Vischer. Now, Phil Vischer, after the 90s and since the total uh, evaporation of that uh, once moralistic uh, cartoon for kids has built a second life for himself, kind of as a, de a Christian deconstructionist, a Christian progressive who is constantly trying to rail against the, the vile fundamentalist Christians out there who actually believe the Bible. And so in his blissfully unaware state, he has done things like fight uh, Alyssa Childers for uh, standing up for biblical truth and for standing up against Marxism as it invades in Christian circles and standing up against John Cooper um, in his most audacious um, podcast where he talks about John Cooper. He has the unself-awareness to suggest that Phil, that John Cooper is some washed up, tired youth band from the 90s. Here's that. Uh, you know, the band Skillet. I like the band Skillet. I actually like their music. The, the uh, lead singer, John Cooper, is kind of interesting because when you start actually listening to the lyrics of it's very, very kind of hard rock, uh, screamy, but fun music. But he kind of likes to be at war. That's, that's a theme through a lot of Skillet's music is that we're under attack. We're not giving up. We're not backing down. You know, so it's, it's like 90s uh, youth group music. You know, it's like... <laughs> Now, John Cooper, of course, is the lead singer of Skillet, and uh, Phil Vischer, of course, is the creator of a children's cartoon. So if there is any washed up, corny, ridiculous person, it's definitely not John Cooper. John Cooper still in the present, even as old as he is, is still rocking it out. And uh, Phil Vischer has basically drowned himself in a sea of irrelevance by swimming in the shores of postmodernism. Just recently, he put that on display as he responded to a PragerU post. And that post said this, that men do not wear dresses. Now, Phil Vischer came to everyone's rescue and he responded this way can we wear robes kilts capes tunics breeches poofy sleeves like pirates wigs if powdered it's hard to keep track of all the rules 
Well, I know a lot of things are very hard for people like you, Phil, so let me try to explain. Uh, before I get too deprecating, let me just say this. I do have to give some respect. i got to put some respect on Phil Vischer and just tell him, Phil, I, I do want to honor you today with an award. You today have won the first place award for missing the point. Congratulations. A lot of hard work went into this, but, but you earned it. Now, um, like most progressives, Phil Vischer here thinks he's being thoughtful. And as we say in the South, bless his heart. Progressives are the ones who try to profess that they're, they're not the legalists. They're the real thoughtful people in society. But of course, that's not the truth. Progressives say, well, we maximize love and you legalists, you, legalists, you, you minimize love. We, we maximize love and you maximize law. But they don't really do that. They maximize superficiality and they minimize the truth. They do this with gender. See, these leftists and even progressive Christians think that there are over 100 genders. I mean, they write books like I Am God's Dream. Whatever you identify as today is absolutely what God had intended for you because all of your feelings and all of your emotions are just right and good with the world. Not only do they pronounce 100 genders, they also give you 100 different ways to identify them with gender pronouns. And if you don't use the right specific gender pronoun, you're a bigot. Of course, all those rules are truly hard to keep up with. And of course, they do the same thing with race. They do things like making sure that you identify somebody as an African-American. You must call them by the right title. Um, but then you ask them, well, hey, can white people from South Africa that come to America, can they, can they be African-American? No, no, no. It can't be, it can't be white people. It's got to be black people. So no, no, Egyptians that come from Egypt, they, even though they're African, they can't be African-American. No, when we say African-American, this is what we mean. We mean those people who have been disproportionately affected by the transatlantic slam, uh, slave trade, that, that Euro-American slave trade. Those are the people we're talking about. They need some respect. They need to be honored this way. Well, if that's true, then Barack Obama is not the first African-American president because his father was from Kenya and people in Kenya were not part of the transatlantic slave trade. So what do we do about that? See, all of these rules, and we start to realize that the people who are absolutely the legalists, who won't acknowledge a simple truth at face value, are people like Phil Vischer. He can't acknowledge the fact that what PragerU was stating was that men not wearing dresses is the simple statement that there is a difference between men and women. Why is it so hard to acknowledge that objective truth anymore? But let me get more substantively to the argument here. The rules are hard to keep up with. Well, the only kind of people who disregard rules are those who hate driving on the right side of the road, those who hate actually creating the meal and using the recipe to do so, and actually hate things like breathing because all of those rules are just so dizzying, but we also live by them. The people who want to reject rules are often the people who don't understand that a rules-based society is actually a loving society, that the rules keep us within certain boundaries so that we can have healthy relationships and a healthy society. All those pesky rules like thou shalt not kill actually help society become a healthy society. But let's go more substantively to the point here. Biological sex matters. At a time where the left can't even answer basic questions of biology, maybe it would help with some of the confusion if we actually had some Christians that read the Bible and realized that it espouses the importance of sex distinctions. And this is where it gets a little bit pesky for Phil Vischer. 
the whole problem with him rejecting these these ideas, especially the ones found in Scripture, like in Deuteronomy, that men should not wear that which pertains to a woman, is that what is being stated there ultimately is the idea that culture matter, but matters. But Phil Vischer wants to wade into the culture wars, but then say that every single Christian that does it outside of him is being bad and that we don't need to do the culture war thing. We just need to be totally steadfastly dedicated to Christian love and Christian compassion, but we don't need to engage in a world that is on the brink of destruction. We just need to emphasize the positive aspects of Christianity and try to, if at all possible, avoid some of the more pesky or less socially acceptable truths of Christian scripture. But of course, the exact opposite is true. Portions of scripture, like in Deuteronomy 22 and in Leviticus 19, where it says things like a man should not wear what a woman wears and that you should not mix certain fibers together, actually are all saying the same thing. It's not necessarily specifically an indictment today that you can't wear polyester and wool, which I don't even know what that would look like. But nonetheless, it's not that uh, it's only legalistic if you want it to be because or I should say this, it's only legalistic if you are ignorant to what the Bible is actually saying. Because what the Bible is actually saying in these passages of Scripture, according to Maimonides, is that there's a difference between the Jews and a difference between the pagan priests of the world. That the reason you don't mix your clothes fibers and the reason you don't wear what women wear is that all these other cultures that worship false gods, they do that and I want you to be distinct. See, that's what's really going on with the Bible and going on with the Prager Post. The fact that Phil Vischer would even reject that idea shows how little he actually knows about the Bible. It's, it's an, an indictment against pagan culture and a reaffirmation of the importance of Christians doing things differently and standing up for the truth. It's only a shame that Phil Vischer missed that point because if he hadn't, he might actually be using his podcast to do more than reject the importance of Supreme Court justices overturning Roe v. Wade, which prior to Trump putting Supreme Court justices on uh, uh, on the Supreme Court. Uh, he was railing against and said it would never happen, but of course it did, and it would keep him from the fallacious and ridiculously overly debunked claims that the uh, the Democratic Party of the present is really the, the Democratic Party that has a history of anti-racism, which of course is not true. Um, they're the most racist party historically and, quite frankly, in the present. Now, he wouldn't have, have missed those things, and he would have rather affirmed the importance of culture and realized that culture is an important tool that Christians need to use to convey some biblical truths. So, for instance, when we say men and women wear different things, yes, that's some ways predicated upon American culture, but it's also predicated upon a biblical truth. Men are different from women. Surprise! This all comes back to the point of the show at the end of the day, which is this, that there are external enemies. There are sufferings that take place in the world. I don't wish to diminish, diminish what just took place in Mississippi and what's taking place in France. They look like they're in some real trouble. It's just merely to suggest this. The best way to fight those is still to fix you, to recognize that there is a God and he created a soul in you and the best solution for the world is for you to be the best you can be. When did we quit taking Jesus seriously on this passage of scripture where he says, take the plank out of your own eye? See, most of the time we just stop and say, God doesn't want you to judge. Well, Jesus actually said, don't judge 
take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly before you start going for the sawdust in the eyes of other people. Why, why don't we take him seriously and realize if we will take the plank out of our eye, then we can help other people? See, by looking at our own heart, we can realize our need for divine help. And then if we get it, we can offer it to other people. But the more as a culture we try to develop safe spaces and echo chambers and false ideologies that really just protect people from actually having to combat the realities and the stark truths of life, the weaker we become. We need suffering, we need difficulty, and we need things to overcome so that we can achieve internally personal growth, and more importantly, so that we can recognize our need for God. If we truly love people, we will want that for them, which is why God is willing to allow suffering in this world because he can use it for a redemptive purpose to help you become better than you presently are. Affirmation is one of the most dangerous things you can do for people for that very reason. Just to affirm people where they're at neglects the fact that they might be able to be better and that there is a journey that you can take towards that better. I just happen to think that's through the journey of Scripture and through God himself. As you take that journey, I would love to hear from you. You can write down in the comments section below. Let me know what you think, and I thank you for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and most importantly, go with God.